Welcome to the OA Light a Candle Meeting Podcast. Visit our website at www.oalaig.org where you'll find several speaker feeds with over 400 speaker files, forms for ordering CDs for these speakers, and a place to donate to keep this special service active. I would now like to introduce our speaker for tonight, John Kay. My name is John. I'm a compulsive eater. I walked in tonight and I saw an old AA sponsor and congratulations, an old uh, OA sponsor. So I'm not going to be able to BS about anything tonight. (laughs) 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 Yeah. (laughs) Happy happy birthday to everybody, by the way, and the, the chip people, too. It's really fun to come back here because this was one of my home meetings and I was uh, like the speaker getter here for like four years and uh, a lot of familiar faces that I don't get to see anymore and it's great. And uh, we were talking before the meeting about this meeting and how special it is. And uh, I don't know if you guys know the history of this, but this meeting was started by that gentleman over there, Roy, on September 1st, 2001, right? And that was uh, 10 days before 9-11 and Roseanne was the first speaker here. And Roy started taping these right from the beginning, and the impact you've made on this is, is amazing, because at first these were tapes and these were CDs, and then in 2006, I think, we started putting these up online, and um, it's kept going, you know. And, and for those of you who work the service of this thing, I, you know, I, go, I lead retreats in the United States and Canada, and everybody knows the LA podcasts. And uh, I gave um, Aaron a, a, a little report before the meeting because I can go on the website and you know pull data out. And in case you're interested, last month in November, this meeting and all the podcasts uh, for LA had 99,060 downloads, and it's just amazing. So guys, keep this up. I mean, it's it's a wonderful thing. It's helping people you have no idea. It's helping around the world. So. Um, I've been coming to OA for 33 years. Um, I have 80, uh, 33 years uh, sobriety in another program, uh, maintaining about 100, 105 pound weight loss for most of those years, and I have uh, 19 and a half years of abstinence. And um, the difference between that 33 years and that 19 years uh, should tell you something that uh, um, it makes me really qualified to talk about relapse and. Uh, uh, you know, I was going through a massive relapse, uh, you know, 19 years ago, and, uh, you know, this is a, a person who was in program for 14 years, who could quote you chunks of the big book, and uh, I was just in that pitiful, incomprehensible demoralization, and uh, so I know anybody who's coming out of a relapse or is dealing with one now, it's... Um, it's bad. And, and, you know, it took me years to see. Part of this was I didn't know, for myself, I didn't know how my disease really was working on me. I didn't also realize the concept of powerlessness as it had to do with the food for me. And, um, uh, you know, it's just, yeah, and so anyway, I'll, I'll talk more about relapse later, but I just, I just finished writing a book about it, so I'm, like, really in, in relapse mode. But uh, I was born as a child of two alcoholics, two Irish alcoholics. What are the odds? Um, <laughs> and I, um, they divorced at a very early age, and I sort of went back and forth between the frying pan and the fire growing up. And the only reason that, that that is of any import in my story is when you're the child of alcoholics, you get some really bad modeling. And one of the worst modelings you get is if you if you watch a parent, you know, parents don't sit you down and say, here, do, do drugs, drink, abuse food, but little kids will watch what their parents do. And one of the things I watch my parents do 
is when they got upset, they would go, I need a, I need a cigarette, I need a drink, I need a pill. And what this little kid got out of that is, if I don't like how I'm feeling inside, there's something outside I can put inside me that'll make it better. And for me, at a very early age, that was food, you know, because I had a pretty hellacious childhood that I'm not going to bother giving you the gory details on, but thank God for food. Thank God, it, you know, there's a guy named Clancy who, who says something to the effect of, thank God for alcohol because we can't sober up a corpse. And I know there was a good chance I wouldn't have made it out of my childhood if I hadn't had something to just somehow calm the horrible things that were going on. We moved, like, constantly. Around. I, they, um, my, parent, my mother was, did these things called geographic cures, so we would move all over, and I mean uh, a lot. And uh, I remember in sixth grade, I think I moved like six times, okay? And um, it's just a hellacious thing, but the one thing that you can find anywhere on earth, I think, you know, but Mount Everest, you can find junk food, you know? And for me, it was sweet and it was salt. And it was follow that sweet salt, sweet salt, all the time I was growing up. And I, uh, I grew up as one of the fat kids, and uh, the guy, the first man in, in OA, his name was A.G., and he used to always say, there's no hell on earth like being a fat kid. Because I've been a fat kid and I've been a fat adult, and you'll get little snide, snarky remarks, you know, as an adult, but kids are just brutal. And uh, so I grew up with that. I grew up being what they call a gifted child, and the trouble with that is it also made me an incredibly obnoxious child, because when you feel like a piece of crap about yourself and how fat you are, you want to grab on some little thread of self-esteem, and for me that was my brain. So I, ha- you know, even like say five years into my my into recovery, if I if I walked into a room, I had to make sure you knew just how smart I was as quickly as I could, and I did this all growing up, and you know, doing things like correcting people's English, you know, things that endear you to your fellow man, you know? <laughs> and and then I was, uh, you know, I was so surprised when nobody liked me and how I was such an outsider, and you know, all the way through high school, I didn't have any girlfriends, I didn't date, didn't go to the prom. You know, we sort of hung out with the same freaks and geeks that nobody else liked either. And uh, and the other thing I remember was, uh, you know, you, the thing about being a little brainiac is you do a lot of reading. And I, you know, read up about alcoholism because I knew I had two alcoholic parents. And it said, oh, children of alcoholics tend to become alcoholics. So I remember, I'm not going to be like my parents. I'm never going to touch alcohol. Except, you know, I'm a teenager, I've got the hormones of a teenager, I'm desperate to meet the opposite sex, and I'm absolutely terrified of them, you know, because I didn't have any sisters, I didn't have any um, way to to know anything. And there's there's a TV show that's on now, and uh, it's an outside issue, but the comic thing in it is that there's a guy who has to get drunk to be able to talk to women. And that was literally part of me, you know. And that's how, when I did find alcohol, I, I fell in love with it, because all of a sudden... First of all, I had a knot in my stomach for about the 10 years before I started drinking, and it went away. And then I could talk to the opposite sex, and I, I felt more self-confident and all that. And obviously, this isn't that program, but um, I went 0 to 60 with that. Um, I started drinking like right away. And then the other thing about that is that really, for the first time in my life, I lost weight. And essentially, it's because I switched, you know, like somebody was saying earlier about whack-a-mole, I switched my sugar to the liquid form, you know. And um, and it's not like I hadn't tried to lose weight before, you know. And I think like everybody, the food does something for you, but at the same time, you hate the byproduct, which is the weight. And I, I tried every diet in the world, you know. I was the only... 
but he under like 25 in a Weight Watchers meeting, you know, when I was 13, and, um, and, and, you know, when I first came to the program, I used to say, oh, you know, I tried all the diets and none of them worked, and the reality was, no, I tried all the diets and they all worked, but they all worked only once, because, you know, I'm a good little student, you hand me the syllabus, I'll follow it, and I take my brain out and I go, okay, this is what it says to do, and I'll follow it, and I would lose weight, but, you know, the trouble is, is I got an addict's brain. And so after the first time around, I'm looking for the loopholes. And, you know, it's not hard to find loopholes in anything. And uh, so, you know, I gained all the weight back. Um, so um, I ended up getting sober. And, and, and uh, the, the story on that is, is irrelevant here other than the fact that, that the thing was I realized I needed to go to a program, but I, I couldn't be part of a religious program. And AA was a religious program. And, and I remember uh, talking to this guy, and he, this is like the, the, the first thing that really you know, happened to change my life. You know, I'm putting away chairs and uh, cleaning up ashtrays. This is a job that doesn't exist anymore, by the way, cleaning up ashtrays. Um, and I'm talking to the guy going, oh, I don't know, I can't be part of a religious program. He's like, no, it's not a religious program. And I go, he goes, it's a spiritual program. And I'm going, no, it's a religious program. And we had these, these things, which were, we used to be like uh, uh, window shade steps in traditions. And I'm like, look, right here, it says God, it says God, it says God, it says Him with a capital H, you know. And he looks at me and he says, okay, leave it out. And it was like one of those incredibly simplistic things you give to an incredibly complex brain that was like, what? And, and, and I remember he said something to the effect of, look, your disease is looking for any reason right now to go out that door. You know, what could be better than to use that? And it was the most brilliant thing the guy could have ever said to me, you know, because at the time I was just a mental mess. And if he just said, I've heard other people tell, uh, tell newcomers, oh, keep coming, you'll get it. And if somebody said that to me, I would have been so paranoid. Oh, my God, the cult is going to get me, and I think I would have run out just as quick, you know. And, um, but the fact that he said that allowed me to all of a sudden, you know, it took the wind out of my sails. I didn't have to be part of the debating society anymore. And I could just listen, a little crack in the door, a little mustard seed, whatever you want to call it. I w was able to listen and keep coming back. And uh, I put down that substance. Uh, oh, and then I didn't say that when I changed over to drinking originally, I lost weight, got down to a normal weight for the first time in my life for like a millisecond. You know, I ended up my first relationship. And the only way I knew how to, not, to lose weight then is I would not eat for like a week at a time, you know. And there was somewhere in here I knew that there was no dimmer switch. It was off and on. And I would like not eat for like a week at a time. And then I'd have a binge. And then I would not eat again for a week. And you know what? If you do that, you will lose weight, especially if you're a 26-year-old male with the uh, metabolism of a hummingbird like I had. And, and I, you know, but then, you know, I gained it all back. And then some, I think I was at my highest then, you know, almost 300 pounds. And, um... Uh, then when I got when I first got sober, I started doing the same crazy thing again. Now the one thing that happens if you keep coming to any program, you start to hear about the other ones. And as soon as I heard about Overeaters Anonymous, I knew that's where I needed to be. But then I had a slip in that program. And when I got sober again, I I remember saying to the guy who became my sponsor, I said, I need to go to OA. And you know, when you're first sober in in that program, they're like, No, here, have a donut. <laughs> you know, have candy. Here, do this. And, and I go, no, you don't understand. I, I know for me that these two things are like this. 
and if I don't do something, I'm not going to be able to stay sober. And he was like, okay, I told you I want you to make these meetings. You know, whatever you do besides that, fine, go ahead, I don't care. <laughs> and, and so I came to OA, and, you know, all of a sudden everything made sense. All, why is it I got this great brain and it's of absolutely no use with my addiction, you know? And, uh, you know, Marcy M always says you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And it's, you know, it's absolutely true, you know? I, and, and, and I got sober. I mean, I got abstinent. And, again, having that, that great metabolism that I'd kill for now, um, I lost my weight very quickly, and then my sponsor went out, and I said, well, I don't need a sponsor here. I, I got the other program. I don't need it. And, and so, and I did. I lost all my weight very quickly. I became, well, and here's, this, it, it's like the, the first time in my life, and the only time I, uh, I could say that I actually, I went into an anorexic phase, you know. And I also say I've been every iteration of this disease. I've been a compulsive eater. I've been a bulimic. I have been an exercise bulimic. And for this little short time, I was anorexic. And the reason I was anorexic is, you know, if you're a fat kid and you grow up your entire life with the idea of hitting goal weight, it's, you know, you, you say the phrase goal weight and, you know, you can almost hear angels singing, you know. Goal weight. And it's going gonna, it's gonna to change my life, you know. I am all of a sudden going to be self-confident. I'm going to have women clawing at my ankles as I walk down the street and all this stuff. And what happened is I had a goal weight when I came to OA and I hit it and nothing changed. I didn't like myself any better. I didn't feel any more confident. And so the crazy brain that I had said, well, that must not be the right number. <laughs> so I lost another 10 pounds, and I still didn't like myself anymore. And I lost another, and then I have people coming up a program going, okay, is there anything you want to talk about? And, and the good thing about experiencing that was to realize there's no number on a scale that's going to allow me to like myself. It's an inside job. And if I do set a number, I'm just going to move the goalposts. And, and, you know, and that's where, you know, when I get into working the steps, change that, you know. Um, you know, I, I, I got absent. I started, I had some slips on the East Coast, I, but I, I stayed reasonably uh, in recovery. I, I got married, my first marriage, and... Um, we moved out to L.A. because I had, at the time I was a stand-up comic and my wife was doing that. She was doing acting and I wanted to write for TV so we moved to L.A. And my program fell apart. My program just went really to, to hell. And uh, it, was, uh, it was the worst time of, of, you know, pitiful and incomprehensible moralization. Because again, I, I got 12, 14 years in program and I'm, I remember I'm going to... Um, I got a sponsor. I am a sponsor. Uh, I'm going to a bunch of meetings every week. I'm an intergroup delegate. I remember, and I remember I was the secretary at Artist and Abstinence meeting, and I would leave the meeting and stop at the donut shop on the way home. And I'm leaving the donut shop, going, "What the hell am I doing? I, you know, if I don't want to be in OA, I don't have. I'm not. You don't get sentenced to OA like you can another program. But the, I couldn't get it. I couldn't understand what was going on. I knew, and so anyway, I ended up going to another program for a while that had a very strict regimen, and it's what I needed to do because I was so out of control at the time. And um, I, I also assumed, and I got absent there, and I got super, super clean. And at the same time, I went and got a therapist because I knew something was up, and I didn't know what it was, and I knew something was driving that engine. 
And uh, I kept, and, and it's the great thing. You, you, you may have heard this in program, but one of my favorite uh, things is if you want to find out what you're eating over, stop eating. You know, and and that's exactly what happened. And then, as much as I was trying to, you know, the, the broken brain trying to figure out the broken brain. As soon as I got clean and sober with the food, it was right there, like within an inch of my nose, that I was in a marriage I didn't want to be in. And I am the alcoholic child that wants everybody to be happy, and every I want to be a people pleaser. And I was going to have to say to somebody who loved me that I really didn't love her. And that's what the food, the, this cycle had been all about. It's like a circle cycle. I would, I would, I would start thinking about going out and, and eating, and then I would go out and eat, and then um, I'd be thinking about trying to get back to OA, and then I would get back to OA, and then I would focus on losing the weight I gained during the binge, and then just about the time things got quiet again, I'd start that cycle all over again. And what that relapse cycle was about is I kept wheeling something in between me and the real problem. Um, that was going on in my life, you know. And this delusional thinking, I think behind it, I don't know, you know, you never know what you, I was actually thinking, but I think part of it was, well, this, this problem I have control over. You know, I can't stop eating, but somehow in my head I have control over it, and this other one I can't. And anyway, I, I stayed abstinent, the marriage ended, it was, very pa- it was very painful to go through it, and I didn't went through it abstinently. But the reality was, we both came out the other side, where we became friends, she found a great guy, uh, you know, again, I think there was there's also some of that grandiosity, oh my god, she, she'll she go to pieces without, you know, me, and of course, no, she didn't. And, and the reality is that we both ended up finding wonderful people, we found the people we were supposed to find, but I couldn't, I couldn't, I had to deal with the problem, you know, I kept... You know, all of my problems in my life I kept trying to solve with food, you know. And the trouble with that is, is uh, you know, I say sometimes it's like I was a rat going down one of those mazes. And I kept hitting my head at the wrong place. And I would back out and then go down the exact same path, which was the food. And what I needed to do was to try something else, like not eating over it. And, and, and that's when, when I sort of got through it, you know. And um, the other thing that happened to me is I... Um, I really got into the big book, and I really got into the steps. And I was in that program, you know, for about seven years, and I came back. And it's so funny, I, I realized, I sometimes joke, I said I've been in two OA programs. The first one I was in, I heard somebody say it really well one time, it's not my line, but she said she had also had a major relapse in the middle. And she said, first time around I used the tools, the second time around I used the steps. And I look and I think about what I was doing. I, the OA I was in the first time around, I went to meetings where every, you got to share, so that I could share my great wisdom and things that were going on in my life, and because I was still in that you know world, I call it a whirlpool of self. I heard somebody recently say a prison of self, and I think that's actually a much better line because it was all about that. It wasn't about doing anything else. And we used to get together. We all thought we were hip, slick, and cool. I remember we would go to those meetings at the. Uh, Drug and Alcohol Center in West Hollywood, and we would lead the meeting. We'd go out for fellowship. We'd, we'd you know, we'd call each other and gossip on the phone, and and uh, we'd we'd laugh about those those geezers who were sitting there talking about the big book and steps. And we're like, God, if I had to hear that damn big book thing one more time, well. When I came back to OA, none of those people are there anymore. You know, you know who's left? The people who were talking about the big book and the steps. You know, and and that that taught me something about it. You know, um, it, it's it's interesting though. I, I had it took me years to look and, and to realize what some of this was about for me. Uh, you know, I um, 
and, and to talk about, you know, a little bit about, especially for newcomers, that this is hard, what we do. You know, it's not hard all the time, and it's not hard once you get some time under your belt, but especially if you're new, this is hard, you know, that, that, that there's so many extra weapons that my disease can use against me in this program as opposed to others, you know. We, we start eating from birth, you know. We're dealing with mother and, and everything. And we also, it's so much more socially acceptable. You don't, you don't ever see please eat responsibly at the end of a, a Mrs. Fields commercial, right? You, you, never, you never hear any of that stuff. And, you know, and, and it's just, oh, well, it's just food and, and all that, you know. And, and even today, you know, being in duly addicted, you know, when I was in the middle of the set, I would, oh, it's just, you know, at least I'm not drinking. Well, you know, I'm going to be the most sober 600-pound guy, you know, at least I'm not drinking. And, and, but that's you see, part of it I didn't understand is that my my disease just takes everything I know and turns it against me. It takes perfectly good program concepts and uses them against me and was. And I couldn't see it at the time. And, and you know, I had to start realizing, no, that's my disease doing. I was the absolute... When I was going through that relapse, I was just an absolute master of, of self-bullshit, you know. And, and if, you know, you know the, I was... I was talking uh, to somebody the other day about I've got great checkbook honesty, but when I was in my, my food, my disease took over my honesty center and, and allowed me to have the craziest self-delusions about food, you know. And, and, and in looking back, the one thing my disease was doing with me during that relapse is, is it was trying to figure out anything it could do to say to me, to get me to kick the can down the road another day on actually putting the food down. So I would be, I'd be going, well, I'm going to work on the steps first. I'll work on the steps, and then I'll get abstinent, you know. Except there's that pesky first step that says, what do you mean, and then I'll get abstinent, you know. And, 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 and oh, I'm going to, uh, I remember, I, I, I've actually done it at the comedy show, but it's a real-life thing that happened to me as I was sitting there one day going, I'm going to redefine my absence. I, you know, when I was in the middle of that slip, I was redefining my abstinence like every day. You know, it was pretty much whatever I eat today, that's my abstinence, you know. Or three meals and a snack. What's a snack? Anything I eat after 5 o'clock is a snack. You know, I can eat more from 5 o'clock to go to bed than I eat all day, but, you know, it's a snack. And, I mean, it's, I can say it now, and it sounds like, well, well God, and no, no sane person, but that's what the second step's about, right? It's about... It's about a very finely tuned and focused insanity. It's, you know, I mean, if, if I thought I was like, you know, standing in the middle of the street, buck naked, you know, then I'd go, man, I'm really crazy. I better not trust anything I think about. But I'm so competent in so many areas except the food. And, and you know, you can look back now and say how bizarre is it some of the things, you know, I would do. You know, I would take perfectly good, you know things, you know, I mean, you know, somebody was mentioning willingness, I, that was another one, well, I'm praying for willingness, I'm just going to pray for willingness, well, again, that's my disease, getting me to kick down the, the can down the road, and a lot of those things, or I'm, I keep coming back, you know, and, and um, somehow I was deluding myself that just coming back was actually accomplishing it, now, obviously, you got to be here to get it, but, you know, um, 
again, it was all perfectly good things. Right? But I, you know, that willingness one, I'm, I can't tell you how limited. They've done that for a month or two. Oh, I'm just praying for the willingness. And uh, I heard somebody at, at a convention once say, you know, when it comes to addiction, willingness is highly overrated. You know, because if Bill and Dr. Bob had waited until they were willing to get sober, we still wouldn't have a program. Pain is a lot better for getting you motivated. And, you know, I, and that to me is one of the other things that makes this disease hard is that the, um, the method of pain it delivers is not the same as these other programs. And, you know, if there's a, here's a phrase you won't hear from a podium very much. If there's something good to be said about alcoholism and, and, and drug addiction, is that it takes you and it slams you face down into the pavement, and it, you may get a little glimmer for a minute of, what the hell am I doing? What the hell am I doing? But the thing about food is that it's a dull, chronic pain. And especially the smarter you are, the more you can keep moving those goalposts and saying, well, I'm never going to get to 200. Well, I'm certainly never going to get to 210. And, and you just keep moving and you keep looking in, in the mirror from here up and you, you keep, and, it's, and it just will slowly keep advancing. You know, I, I, I tell the story that, that you know, there's a, a scientist will take a live frog and put it po- toward a, a, a pan of boiling water and, you know, the, if frog is not dumb, it's, I don't want to be anywhere near that, and it will sort of thrash to get away. But you can take that same frog and put it in a, a, a pan of room temperature water and bring up the heat, and it'll die in a pot of boiling water, and it'll never jump out. And to me, that is a metaphor for this disease, that it is, you know, it makes us uncomfortable enough to know we should do something about it, but not uncomfortable enough to be willing to go to any lengths. And and for me, I had to sort of say, I had to pull my bottom up to where I was. And, you know, I, I, I talk about it sometimes that, you know, I get kidded sometimes in the other program about being in OA. You know, well, you know, you're going to find you in the gutter with a bag of Twinkies or something like that. And I love to tell them, you know, I have never buried any sponsees in that program. I've buried two in this program. And anybody who's been around for any number of years can name people that are not here anymore. And that doesn't mean they went out. They're dead, you know. Jim, uh, one of my sponsees, was 600 pounds, you know. And he died in a fire because he couldn't get out. He was too big. And when I had thoughts of how I was going to go, I'd have a heart attack, I'd have a stroke, that never occurred to me, you know. And... And to this day, I, you know, I remember that. When I hear people talk about, oh, I'm going to try this, and if this doesn't work, I'll go to Jenny Craig or whatever. I'm like, no, this is different. I'm in the program with a body count, you know. I'm in the program where people are not here anymore. And the other scary thing, and, and there's other people, I'm not going to mention his name, but I know his tape is still up there, who, who was a lot of people loved in this program. He went out, and he's dead now. And the scary thing about all three of those people I can name quickly, and I'm talking, I can also name dozens of other people that are dead. People either suicides, I've known anorexic girls of 20 who dropped dead of heart attacks. Um, But those three guys that I can think of, the scariest part about it is, it isn't like they didn't get it. They had it. And they gave it away, you know. And I, you know, when I talk about my relapse, I said I gave it away. You know, the word slip has such a passive thing. Oh, I'm walking down the street. Whoa, I slipped and I ended up with a cake in my mouth. You know, <laughs> you know. No, I went out and I gave it up. And and today, I really believe my absence is a gift from my higher power. You know, and the thing about it, you know, why on one after weeks and months and years of saying, well, okay, well, I want to get abstinent. 
that one day, it, you know, my higher power took pity on me and said, okay, he's had enough, you know. And, but I'm the one who's going to give it away. You know, my higher power is never going to rip it out of my hands. And, and today, I mean, the, you know, I have to be careful because my disease keeps banging away on me. You know, and it knows now. It can't, it can't give the same pitch. I call my disease the world's best salesman, you know. If you think about somebody who's a really good salesman, he's just, you know, smooth and he's likable and all that stuff and he's a great salesman. Now, imagine you've you, you, you got the world's best salesman who could also read your mind. So no matter what you're going to say as the thing, he's got the counter for it already, right? And that's what my disease would do all the time. And uh, if the disease won and made the sale, the really nasty thing is it would then put its arm around me and go, and you know what? This was your idea. (laughs) It wasn't my idea. If I really wanted to be eating, I wouldn't have been going to those meetings. I wouldn't have been a sponsor. I wouldn't have had a sponsor. I wouldn't have been in any group rep. But I couldn't see that. To me, I did it again. And the, being able to put a face on that and say it's something from outside really helped me a lot. And the other idea was the concept of powerlessness. I used to, for 14 years, I would sit there and go, I'm powerless over food. You know, I'm powerless, I'm powerless, I'm powerless. I went and eat. I'm powerless, I'm powerless, eat. Powerless, powerless, eat. How powerless did I really think I was? I wasn't saying, screw away, I'm never coming back. What I was saying under the surface was, when I'm done, I will come back and I will get abstinent again. And you know what? I could do that. And what it took me years to get, about the dif- for me, the difference between powerlessness in this program, is that I can be powerful over the food in the small picture. Because I, I would say I'm powerless, but I had the empirical evidence of many times of breaking my abstinence and getting abstinent again. So part of my brain is going, that's bullshit. You can do this. And it was true. If I broke my abstinence, I knew I could come back and I could eventually get that train to a halt. I might have to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I might have to get a new sponsor. You may have me write like hell. you know. But eventually I would get it back. But the trouble with that is knowing that set the next one up. And the next one and the next one. And what I had to do is change how I saw it. You know, I believe in my heart of hearts today that I am powerless over a bullet and a gun. And you know how I I believe that? Because I've never taken a gun and put it to my head. And as I'm pulling the trigger, say, I'll start again on Monday. You know, I get it. That's it. And that's the way I needed to change and see my, my, my powerlessness. Because none of those guys who, when they picked up that first fight that are dead now, said, I'm going to go out and I'm going to go on a binge and then I'm going to get disillusioned with OA and then I'm going to leave and I'm going to die. You know, they were all just, uh, you know, I'm going to do this. And that scares the hell out of me now because I know if that can happen to them, it can happen to me, you know. And for me, I needed, you know, when I first came in, you used to always hear, we don't eat no matter what. You know, we don't eat, you pound the podium. And I heard somebody say it much better recently. They said, look, if, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. It's always going to be the path of least resistance. If you have a choice between having to go through some emotional turmoil, emotional pain, or eating something that you like that at least at one time in your life made you feel better, it's a no-brainer. You're going to choose that. And what I realized is, for me, the absence had to change to be food is not an option anymore. It just can't be an option. And, I don't know, for me, I can only tell you that I'm a, I'm a great believer in this program. I have a higher power now. It's not the higher power I grew up with. And I'm also a huge believer in levels of higher powers. 
You know, I have a I have a real higher power, but I have a sponsor. I'll tell you, when I was getting abstinent, I needed a sponsor way more than I needed a higher power. You know, because like somebody said earlier, God speaks through people. You know, and I needed that because I, I I joke sometimes. I said I can go off and pray. And me and God will commune, and I'll come out thinking chocolate's a vegetable, you know. <laughs> and I tell my sponsor chocolate's a vegetable, and he goes, eh, not for today, you know. And and so I need those levels, and, and I know to this day, no matter how much time I have, my disease is banging on the door. It, it's not giving me the same pitch it gave when I was first ab- you know, absent or go binge, but it'll give me just the little thing to nudge me off. You know, they talk about, like, if it's an asteroid heading to Earth, what you do is go out far enough and just nudge it a little. Well, that's what my disease wants to do. It wants to say, eh, you know, you're going to too many meetings, you know, man. And it knows if it can get me thinking that way, you know, eventually I'll be off the other rails, you know. And so anyway, um, I want to thank Susan for asking me to speak. We've got a little bit of time left. Maybe I'll take a, you know, a question or two. And thanks for letting me share. Anybody want to? Uh, what was my hardest struggle? Um... For me, I think it was putting down the food. You know, again, my, my, especially when I was in, you know, when I was in that relapse, I was thinking anything. Oh, I'm going to pray to God. I'll do this. I mean, all the program things you say. You know, I remember actually saying one time, well, I was starting to say, but I redefining my abstinence, and the thought popped in my head, now you broke your abstinence. You're just redefining your honesty, you know? (laughs) And, and for me, that was it. And I had to realize and get to really grasp that the one thing my disease wanted me to just keep doing is not have to put down the food. And if I could keep coming with all these distractions and not put the food down. I hear people occasionally say, oh, I worked steps and then I got abstinent. But I think for every one of those, there's a hundred people hoping that can work for them and it doesn't, and they end up leaving. For me... It comes down to this is a program based on AA, and there's nowhere in that big book does it say when you're done with these first 164 pages, you will want to get sober. It'll just happen. You can drink your way through, and then you'll be sober. It, you, we got to put the substance down, and that was the hardest thing for me to have to admit. So. My abstinence is made up of numerous things. My food plan is, for the most part, three meals a day and a, a snack at night, which is essentially a deferred dessert from dinner. And uh, occasionally it has to change if I, ha- I have to go somewhere. But at, my food plan is part of my absence. My other parts of my absence are, are when I can to go to two to three meetings a week. It's to have a sponsor, to do service and be a sponsor, and, and the other parts of the program. It isn't just about the food plan. So. The spiritual program, I'm a great believer in the two... The two uh, sections in the big book, the one about the 10th step and the one about the 11th step. You know, when retiring for the evening, we try to think about, you know, our day and did we do things right and just try and make a mental list of that kind of thing. And then on the, on, on chapter, on the 11th step, it says, well, you know, upon awakening, we look at the 24 hours ahead. I used to desperately try to do meditation but I couldn't because I just am too much of an A personality and I found the most wonderful meditation tool that I, I have now. It's called a dog. And I take Lila out for a walk and she chases every squirrel and sniffs everything and I have a chance to wake up and, and think of things differently. And, and I know somebody, I think he's here today, who said, why not, as a part of your daily meditation, just get up and not turn on the TV not turn on the computer and just take a little bit of time to think about it you know and and that's what's worked for me anyway uh, I think my time is up so thanks for letting me share